Sustain 267. Welcome to the Sustain 267 podcast, where we host conversations on different issues affecting climate change in Botswana and the rest of Africa. I am your host, Patukilisiti. Today's episode is part of the Eatly Africa and Africa Center for Cities Rise Africa's discussion series. Rise Africa is a platform for sharing bold and novel ideas across disciplines, occupations and fields and inspiring action that can support the realization of sustainable African cities. This series is supported by the South African National Research Foundation and you may find more thought pieces on the Rise Africa platform. The link is in the episode notes. African cities are rapidly changing and urbanizing and many cities are seeking sustainable paths of growth and development. The conundrum remains in finding appropriate solutions to complex urban environments where uncertainty is rampant and deep-rooted challenges underscored by climate change, structural inequality and social injustice exist. In finding new pathways to sustainable and just transitions for African cities, a shift in thought and knowledge production is necessary to provide inspiration and guidance for those shaping our cities. Most importantly, we need ideas which galvanize action, share lessons and encourage experience experimentation and new ways of doing and being in our cities. In this episode, joined by Dr. Marisa, we unpack climate change resilience in African cities as they develop and grow. Dr. Mzime Ndebele Marisa is an ecologist who is passionate about using participatory, inclusive, and bottom-up approaches to help solve global environmental change challenges in Africa. She serves as the program specialist at Start International and academic board member of an international journal, PLOS Climate. Dr. Mzime holds a PhD from the University of Western Cape in South Africa. She has 15 years experience from academic, research and developmental work and has worked with collaborative research teams focusing on climate vulnerability, impact and assessments, climate modelling, as well as water resource management, urban resilience and global environmental change, among other foci. She has published several books, book chapters and journal articles, among which are contributions to the fifth the International Government Panel on Climate Change and the upcoming sixth assessment report. She enjoys working on diversified communication products such as online articles which reach wider audiences beyond the scientific community. I've included links to her professional work in the episode notes. Climate change resilience is a phrase, if we may call it that, that is rather prevalent in the conversation of climate change. And to kick off the conversation, I asked Dr. Marisa, what is climate change resilience and why is it important for African cities? Resilience simply means the ability of a system to get back to its functionality and original form after a shock. So if we are talking about climate resilience, we know that climate can come in as a, as a disturbance. It can be a shock or it can be gradual, you know, bit by bit. So the ability of our cities to continue developing, our the ability of our city ecosystems to continue providing services and, and, and ecosystem services despite these climate changes and other changes or shocks that come in, and, and a very good one to quote at this point is COVID-19. That's, that, that's a global 
uh, pandemic that has ravished us left, right, uh, and center. And and in our cities, it's it's really also been uh, uh, felt. So the ability of our cities to build resilience against such shocks, against health shocks such as COVID-19, against climate change, against climate extremes. And I'll give an example of uh, climate extremes such as flooding, We've seen this phenomena in a lot of our cities, uh, uh, African cities included. So just making sure that our our systems uh, are resilient, our buildings, our infrastructure can take those shocks. So that's what resilience uh, means and in the context of our urban uh, ecosystems or cities. Because often we forget that our cities, our built environment and where we live, they are actually ecosystems that interact with the environment uh, around us. And those interactions uh, are, are really quite important because they make, they make us as the, as the cities. So going back to your question of resilience and climate, one of the interactions that cities uh, have is with the environment includes climate. So for example, just having a built environment, just having our buildings, um, versus a natural environment where there are trees and grasses and ground cover. Already, uh, we, we are affecting uh, the climate. That means that our buildings, uh, our pavements, our roads are retaining more heat. So you find that in most cities, you have this heat island effect where temperatures are a bit higher uh, when you compare them to where, you know, there are no buildings, for example, and particularly where there is ground cover. Um, so we are we are emitting uh, a more more heat, and our cities are a bit uh, warmer because of that. And then, of course, we also uh, interact with the environment in many other ways. If you look at most cities, they are built along um, alongside natural resources, particularly water uh, resources, because as you can imagine, um, it's important to have good water source. For, for the city to use and water is one of the critical uh, services in our in our cities so we also interact we, we uh, uh, abstract water we use water and then we em, 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 emit it as waste water and often we emit it into our uh, natural ecosystems whether we are putting it down into the soil or we are putting it back uh, into the rivers so at the end of the day this interaction means that, we need to do it in such a way which is sustainable, such that the services we are drawing from the ecosystems continue. So that brings us back to your, your question, or if we want to zero in on resilience, is about making sure that whatever we are doing in our cities, whatever uh, resources we are, we are using, and I'm really zeroing in on our natural uh, uh, resources, we are using them in such a sustainable uh, manner such that we will still have them, we will still be able to access them in the future. As you know, most developed countries and therefore cities have um, used a development pathway which is not uh, climate change friendly, if I may call it that, by using fossil fuels um, as, as, as uh, mostly their energy for industrial processes and so forth, which has led to this um, phenomena of... Uh, human-driven climate change and variability. And because it's a global phenomenon, what happens in China, 
for example, in terms of the emissions that they are uh, emitting, which contributes to uh, global warming and therefore climate change, will affect us in Africa. Uh, and China is just an example because those uh, emissions will travel down uh, to us and then we get all these uh, climate-related um, extreme events and, and phenomena that we have to deal with in our, in our African cities. So whether or not we believe in climate change, whether or not we are uh, emitting and contributing to to emissions and the, and the problem of, of climate change, it's affecting us. So we have no choice. African cities have no choice but to build uh, their cities to be climate resilient because it's, it's, it's just a fact. It's been scientifically proven. And so we have this issue and it's, it's, it's an issue that the cities have to take on head on. And it's right in our, in, in our faces. And then also it's very important then, I talked about it being an opportunity. It's a challenge and opportunity at the same time. So African cities are still growing and developing. So there's an opportunity to then uh, choose a, a climate resilient development pathway. Um, and this makes the cities more sustainable, uh, the future um, a bit more secure in terms of um, having, continuing, uh, developing the cities and all the services, as well as ecosystem services that, that will be available for, for, for its populations. And then lastly, African cities are among the fastest growing in terms of human populations. I'll give you an example of Tanzania and Kampala, which are projected to double their population by 2035, which is soon, hey? So just dealing with the issues that come with a growing population, the pressure um, on services just means that there's no other choice but to be sustainable. Uh, otherwise, uh, you know, we die if, if I can go as extreme as that. As you're talking about how we see cities experiencing climate change, I think one of the most shocking ones that has really brought it to front this week has been the flooding in New York, where you saw people trying to get in and out of, um, I forget what their railway system is called, and it was completely, completely flooded. So I guess that would then count as a shock event where we're seeing it as mm -hmm. the biggest city, one of the biggest cities in the whole world. So yeah, I thought I'd point that mm -hmm. out. Um, in the show notes, I'll just, I'll put in a link to maybe an article with a couple of pictures on that. You mm -hmm. touched on urban ecosystems as we've been talking at, um, from our chat before. And I think personally, mm -hmm. And sometimes we tend to think of buildings at resilience and doing this kind of work in very, very simple terms. But what are the complexities that are faced by urban ecosystems as we try to move towards more climate resilient cities? Thanks so much, Pato. And I'll also refer to two cities. You were talking about flooding in New York and in our own context in Africa, I mean, we have cities that are being rav uh, ravished by by flooding. Um, more recently and more frequently, I will, I will give an example of Durban, which in 2019, you know, experienced extreme flooding, and it it affected 
flooded um, one of the major rivers. So that river, you know, broke its banks, flooded and affected so much infrastructure, as you can imagine, and particularly the informal settlements, because um, and in that city is the Quarry, quarry uh, River catchment. Uh, and, and they were affected to, to such a great extent. But um, let's go back to, 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 to your question on uh, complexities. So I've already talked about or touched on uh, the growing uh, population. This is a phenomenon that affects almost every city. And in Africa, it's, 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 in, it's particularly because of the urban, rural urban migration. Most of our African cities and capital cities, to be more uh, specific, host uh, the majority in terms of one place of the population. In, in some cities, it's up to 20% of the population of a country. So you can imagine the, the pressure and the issues that come with growing uh, populations. And Africa is projected right now, it is the fastest population growth uh, in the whole world. So we have a bulging uh, uh, youth, um, uh, and, and you know we we are we are going to grow. We are going to populate our cities, and then we we we, we put pressure on those services uh, that that we need um, within a city. But what makes it more complex is the fact that all these issues uh, are interlinked. They are intricately interlinked. So you cannot divorce. Um, one issue from the other. So what happens is uh, you have these services, and I'll mention a few, um, which are quite obvious. You're looking at water, water provision, and we're talking about portable uh, water. You're looking at energy, uh, which is quite critical uh, in cities, um, at industrial level, at domestic level, and so forth, and for the economy of our cities. Uh, we're looking at issues to do with solid and sewage waste management. That is the provision of the systems to carry uh, waste uh, and to also manage it. Um, then you're looking at transport, housing, health, uh, infrastructure development, so what happens is all these services are very interlinked. You cannot talk about energy in a lot of cities without talking about water because energy, uh, I mean, water is used to produce energy. And in some of the processes to do with energy production, water is also a byproduct. So the, 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 it makes it very complex in that you cannot separate one issue. You cannot just talk about water without, you know, talking about other layers and other issues. And then on top of all this, you want to put in governance and decision-making, which is also another layer of its own in terms of how we manage the cities, who is in charge, who is uh, polluting, for example, who does what, who who, who governs, who, who makes sure that things uh, are running. So when you then look at that landscape of complexity and then you add climate change, it comes in as an exacerbating force, again, making it so complex. So on top of all that, trying to manage the city, trying to make sure that services uh, are provided, trying to make sure that, you know, it's governed properly, people have jobs, they have transport, ETC, you then have climate change coming in. So it makes it so, so, so very complex. And the last one I will touch on, it has to do with the city as an ecosystem because you then have things like biodiversity protection, which 
we mostly don't think about when we think about cities because we think about them as this built uh, environment. But we have uh, within the city, we have living uh, organisms, we have uh, natural resources, including land and so forth. And all these interact you know, with the people, with the city, with how we, 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 we use it. And then you also have agriculture and food systems. Again, it's, it's not an obvious one because we mostly think about food systems and production, farming and so forth outside of the city. But I'll tell you what, uh, Petro, we are finding more and more a lot of food production beginning to happen within our cities. So we're talking about urban agriculture and peri-urban agriculture. And such processes draw um, things like water, they use the soil, uh, you know, and some of the practices are actually bad practices in, in the context of climate change because, you know, they, 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 they emit uh, greenhouse gases, such as livestock production, for example, uh, or the way they use the water might not be so uh, sustainable in irrigation or in the waste um, uh, processes. So I'm trying to paint a picture of the complexity <laughs> of, of urban ecosystems. You know, they interact with the environment and then you have people coming in there and then you have governance uh, systems at local level, at national level, and, and that sort of vet um multi-layered governance uh, system. So yeah, it becomes <laughs> complex. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like a like a spider web. It's lateral, it's vertical, uh -huh. it's diagonal. Um, but thank you for breaking it, um, breaking it down for us like that. When we then look at um, solutions, how should we build climate resilient cities, particularly in Africa? And what should we consider in our solutions? Because I think we've had conversations, I remember there was a, a previous episode that we did with Vena Minga, I think, and she talked about how sometimes mm -hmm. solutions are brilliant, but because of not considering other things, they end up, end up in maladaptation. What are some of the solutions that would be unique to Africa and some of the complexities that you just highlighted now? Um, I was reading mm -hmm. your paper, um, City to City Learning and Knowledge Exchange for Climate Resilience in Southern Africa. I'll share a link to it in the show notes. Mm -hmm. And a solution that stood out for me was knowledge sharing. I found that quite mm -hmm. at, at that at that level, it would be considered something as impactful. Do you mind um, sharing some solutions and then maybe unpacking that for me? Thanks so much. And uh, thanks for, for highlighting the paper which comes from a project that I was involved in called Future Resilience for African Cities and Lands. So as you can imagine, um, that particular project concentrated on urban resilience. So some of the solutions that I'm going to talk about uh, come from the work that we did in uh, nine Southern African uh, uh, cities. And I like the way you re reference to knowledge and knowledge sharing um, uh, Petra, because knowledge is power. And so if we start off from there, we're really talking about harnessing the knowledge, you know, and knowledge um, in the way that we um, looked at it was not that there's any superior form of knowledge. You know, oftentimes that's the issue. 
Um, and I think as, as African cities and people, if we can come together and understand that there are different types of knowledge and there is no superior knowledge and we can collaboratively bring that knowledge together uh, and in this context to build climate resilient uh, cities. So we're talking about indigenous knowledge, we're talking about scientific knowledge. Um, we are talking about street street knowledge even, you know, harnessing that knowledge from those different uh, types of knowledge, bringing it to one table and collaboratively working together. But I will say that what is unique to the continent and to our cities is the fact that Africa is endowed with natural resources and biodiversity. I mean, some of the biggest biodiversity sports, and when I talk about biodiversity, I'm talking about our natural uh, environment, our trees, our grasses, our water. Um, water, for example, we have some of the largest uh, lakes, natural man-made in the world um, within our continent. So that's an advantage uh, already. We, we, we have these uh, natural resources that we can make use of and we can make sure that in, in using them, we use them in such a way that it's climate uh, resilient. So it means that we can then use these natural um, uh, uh, resources to build our cities, okay? So we're talking about building infrastructure. We're talking about ecosystem services such as water, such as food, um, the air that we breathe, all those uh, lovely things that we get from our natural uh, ecosystems. Then we can concentrate on resilience, building resilience. So examples that I will give, um, trying to make sure that we have non-renewable, oh, sorry, renewable, not non-renewable, please. Renewable uh, energy Renewable, sources. got it. Yes, <laughs> and we're talking about greening uh, our cities. We, we, we still, you know, a lot of African cities still have land uh, to build. And one of the uh, 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 things that we can do instead of doing what we call pancake cities that is you have a, a sort of central business district and then the city fans out and continues to grow you know like a pancake continues to grow uh, outward we can make use of a high-rise uh, uh, buildings but we can also make sure that our buildings are uh, 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 environmentally friendly, we're using environmentally friendly uh, building material. We are making sure that that material, there's natural cooling and heating instead of relying on um, things like air conditioning and so forth, which, you know, have all these issues to do with energy and also emitting uh, uh, emissions. Uh, we can also make sure that those uh, renewable energy um, systems and processes, we are channeling them into not only our built environment, but into our industrial processes, into our energy production, into our food production, into our value chain systems, uh, even transport, housing, water infrastructure. And I'll give an example. Um, you know, a lot of our African cities are beginning to encroach into what uh, I, I, I would say should be zoned as um, uh, biodiversity protected areas like wetlands, for example, because, you know, there's this pressure for housing and for people to have decent accommodation uh, and so forth. Yet we can use those sort of resources, you know. Um, a lot of our cities or, or countries have signed the Ramsar Convention. It does not preclude uh, us from sustainably using 
you know, instead of just going the colonial uh, kind of way and top-down uh, approach of protecting, we can sustainably use those sort of resources. For I'll give examples of the of the Netherlands where they would do reconstructed uh, wetlands. So they are using the water, but they are making sure that the things like environmental water flows are still uh, are there. Um, doing uh, agricultural practices uh, in there which are sustainable. And remember, I talked about knowledge. This knowledge was there even in our indigenous knowledge systems. If, if you talk to, to our folks, um, uh, in Africa, they will tell you there were rules to do with how to use those sort of um, uh, resources. In, in my country, for example, we call them dambos. There was a limit to, to what you could plant, when you could plant, how you could plant. So just bringing all those um, uh, uh, kind of sustainable uh, ways of utilizing our natural resources uh, back. So, so that's an example. Uh, greening our cities, that's, we have a huge opportunity as African cities to green our cities. We are still growing, we're still building. So again, making sure that our, our buildings, our roads, our sanitation uh, uh, systems, uh, for example, they, 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 they are green. Let's use materials that are environmentally friendly. Uh, let's make sure that we are planting trees, not only on the ground and soil, but even on our, uh, on our buildings. Um, water and energy uh, conservation. And I'll give examples because I know you might ask about cities that are that are championing some of the, uh, of these issues. So yes, just making sure that we we are utilizing our environment, but we are protecting it at the same time. It's yielding for us economic viable economic um, benefits to the communities, which takes us back to you know the sustainable model when we're talking about SDGs, making sure that the environment is protected, uh, it's economically viable, it's benefiting communities, and there you have it, your uh, sustainable development uh, framework. When when you first started on the importance of sharing knowledge, um, that gave us quite a bit of confidence in what we do at Sustain267, looking at our whole model is to try and share okay. African knowledge. So with you, it, it, it makes us feel a little warm inside that we're contributing to the success and growth and um, development of Africa in our little, little way. Um, and then mm -hmm. something else that you touched on was street knowledge. I think we've talked about mm -hmm. indigenous knowledge, we've talked about scientific knowledge, but something that we've, I, I to date have not heard being referenced to is street knowledge. Um, we talk mm -hmm. about being streetwise and so forth, but mm -hmm. um, within the climate conversation, I don't think we've really touched on street knowledge. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you know what, uh, Peter, I was once involved in, um, no, it was Rise Africa, but there was another conference um, which really looked at how to use uh, the arts. Uh, you know, and, and that touches a little bit into street knowledge. Why don't we make our graffiti climate, uh, make sure that it's, it's about climate awareness, you know? Uh, why don't we make use of the youths with their energy and their um, free time, if I may call it that, to, to raise awareness uh, within our streets and within uh, our communities. I'm also involved in a, in a program called Education Partnership for Innovation in Communities. And like the, 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 the previous 
program that I, I, I referred to and that um, um, had that paper that you referred to, City uh, Learning Exchanges, it, it makes use of different sectors within the city. <clears throat> Looking at the university, the city itself, and communities. But what is unique about it is that the university doesn't come in typically as researchers and senior academics, but it makes use of the students. So what, what the program does, it's called EPIC in short, it, it, um, it lets the students go out there, you know, identify, co-identify uh, problems with the city, with the communities, even in their neighborhoods, you know. And once they do that, they then go back to, to the university to infuse those challenges into the curriculum so they can do mini projects, they can do field excursions where they, they, they investigate and co-explore co these issues and come up with solutions. And you know what the beauty is? It's these students, it's, it's before they have entered the marketplace and the job um, uh, area, they, they are still, uh, I don't want to call them naive, but they are energetic, they, they, they are passionate, you know. So it's harnessing uh, that because the solutions they come up with, they are not uh, boxed, you know, they, they, they are not bogged down by politics or, or um, bureaucracy and so forth. So they come up with really innovative um, solutions. And at the same time, they are able to communicate to the communities or people on the ground much more than a city or researchers would do. So it's really making sure that we are involved. Um, it's inclusive, it's participatory making sure that the different energies, you know, we need you um, uh, as, as, as advocates for, for climate change and for knowledge on the table. And just whatever everyone can bring to the table to make sure that, you know, we're talking about urban resilience, sustainability, climate res uh, resilience. Let's do that. So sorry for diverting. Mm -hmm. Let's get back to <laughs> the real stuff. No, please. Um, I actually, what I found um, from the conversations that I have here is that the best stuff comes from the tangents. When someone goes off tangent, usually it's to talk about something that they really, really love and they're really passionate about. And just like when they share, that's usually the stuff that they care, care most about. Um, so I'm happy for any tangent. Feel free to go on a tangent with every response. And then two, what you said about the EPIC program on naivety. Do you know, I think we shouldn't shy away from calling it naivety. It really is youthful naivety. Um, yes. What we maybe should shy away from is looking at it negatively. We do need that merging of 30 years of experience and knowledge um, and balance that out with complete naivety that's co that doesn't even know where the bound, you don't, you can't even tell them to think outside the box because they don't even know there's a box right. to begin with. Um, uh -huh. Uh -huh. And then I will add a link to the program that you um, just mentioned now. It sounds really, really interesting. And if someone would like mm -hmm. to scale it or see how it's going, I'll add, if, the, if it's got an online platform, I will add mm -hmm. a link in the show notes. And then for our next question, um, you touched on, but you didn't go into the leading African cities when it comes to um, climate resilience. I know when, when I was reading your paper from the fractal study that you did, I know Durban mm -hmm. and Lagos were termed early adopters, um, which made me think, what are they doing right? Why are they early adopters? And how do we get more African cities onto the early adopters' boat? 
Um, yes. And other cities are there besides Durban and Lagos? Definitely, I'm going to uh, give examples from the cities that I have worked in or the programs that I've been involved in. But I've tried to expand it a little bit so that we... We are really African and not uh, biased towards Southern Africa. So I'll start off with two, three cities actually from Southern Africa. And again, they are referenced in our, um, in our paper. The first one is the city of Windhoek. Um, I, I, I visited the city of Windhoek. I mean, our paper talks about city exchanges and how we can, you know, not necessarily visit, but learn from, from other cities what they are doing right, even learn from their failures. That's, that's, that's actually a big one in terms of um, uh, climate uh, resilience. So Windhoek, as you know, uh, Peto, it's, it's a desert. It's literally a desert, and that's really struck me. And they draw their water from, I think it's over 300 uh, kilometers away, a river that's 300 kilometers away. So water to them is a very, very precious uh, resource. So what they have done and what I found fascinating is this water reclamation and conservation uh, program. And what they do is that wastewater that comes from processes such as sewage uh, uh, and industrial processes, they reclaim it. They have formed a, a PPP uh, with the local government, the government, uh, I think a private company and the city. And, you know, it, that water goes through such a process that it comes out as safe uh, water that, that, you know, you can even drink. So they then take the water back into the system, you see. So it's a very clever way of using water, conserving water and making sure that, you know, you, 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 you maximize every drop. And then they also have uh, a lot of programs that are um, focused on water conservation. For example, they will, you know, people in Vindhook are not allowed to drill, to drill boreholes. You really have to uh, apply boreholes are communal. And um, also the, the open spaces, you know, the green spaces for sports and so forth. The, they are irrigated by wastewater and not, you know, treated water that we, we call, call it that. Particularly in, in terms of where our climate is going and, you know, how water is going to become even more and more uh, scarce as we go. And, and, and I really believe for Africa that the next war, if there's going to be, it's going to be on water. Anyway, let's get back to the cities. Another city that we also reference in our paper is the city of Durban. I think I already started talking about it. So Durban has this um, river transformative management um, program, which has, which has a lot to do with uh, flooding, but also working with communities. And Durban, I think, was one of the pioneers in terms of their climate policy, they signed what is called the Durban Adaptation Charter way before, I think it was just after uh, COP17, in um, which was in 20, 2011, just after that. And they have really been uh, forerunners in terms of uh, climate resilience uh, within their city. And the last thing they are also doing a lot is biodiversity uh, protection. And if, if people want to know more, maybe they can read our paper and, and, and other papers. And then I'll move on to, to East Africa, where there are two cities which I'd like to reference. 
And I already talked about them, Kampala and Dar es Salaam. Remember, I said that they are going to double their population by 2035. But Kampala is, is a great example of an African city that's leading on climate resilience. Again, they also have on paper a very comprehensive climate action strategy. But what I like, what I really love about it is that it, it, it's not just on paper. You know, as, as um, Africans, sometimes we love signing the papers and we have the policy, but in terms of implementation, uh, it, it can be uh, difficult. But what they have gone on to do is they have really put the figures, the numbers, the money, you know, to it. So, for example, um, that strategy, it, it outlines that they want to reduce um, emissions 22% by 22% by 2030. 2030 is around the corner. It's very ambitious, but they are doing it. Some of the things that they are beginning to do is um, promoting electrical sol solar energy, that is solar-powered um, uh, uh, batteries, I believe. Uh, so electric uh, vehicles uh, in their cities, they are doing a lot of tree planting. So their target through this strategy is to plant half a million trees <laughs> by a certain time, which is extremely uh, 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 ambitious. So that talks about the environment. And then when it comes to the economic uh, part, they, this strategy outlines that they would it's going to raise $33 million uh, by the actions they are doing in terms of mitigation and uh, adaptation. And then it also talks about uh, social uh, protection and health. So one of the things that's been happening in Kampala and, you, you know, the country uh, as a whole is that they are very reliant on charcoal as their main energy source, like 90% of their energy comes from charcoal. So they want to get rid of that. They want to go uh, green. They want to do renewable energy. And, you know, I, I, I'm already beginning to quote some of the uh, things that they're doing in terms of that. And then if we go to direct capital of Tanzania, but it, it has had a very comprehensive core nature-based solutions program that looks at their coastal zone management and particularly in uh, protecting their mangroves, which are, are ecosystems, you know, as you're coming from the land going into the sea. Um, so you get a, 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 these trees, you know, the, these these mangroves and they, they um in terms of the ecosystem services that they they, they provide, they are way up there, uh, but they are also a carbon sink uh, and so forth. So that's what they've been working on. They've been fortunate in that, you know, these are funded uh, uh, programs through World Bank, um, uh, the UN and, and, and so forth. And then the last city that I will touch on is, in fact, it's the cities in Morocco. Uh, that's North Africa. So Morocco is uh, unique in that it's one of the few, um, even South Africa is not uh, 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 close, or even countries like uh, like Botswana, uh, where you are, Peto. But what Morocco has done is it's, it's one of the countries that is likely to meet the SDGs, okay? So what they have done or some of the things they've done in their cities, I'll give one example of, of those things, is to really champion resilient building. Um, so they are talking about safer uh, buildings, healthier buildings, resilient uh, 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 buildings. So they have embedded that within their land planning and building regulations, which are very strict. 
So they, you know, that's how they are building their their their, their climate uh, resilience. And then last but not least, I'll quickly talk about Harare. I cannot leave it. This is where I live. This is where I am. This is where I work. So Harare is interesting in that we have uh, an NDC uh, target. It's countrywide to reduce emissions by 33%. Again, very ambitious. Uh, But what we are trying to do is to mainstream that to city level, to begin to look at how that, what what do those processes of reducing emissions uh, look like at at the city level and not just at the the national level? Because as you know, these are nationally determined contributions. But now mainstreaming them and bringing them uh, down and beginning to talk at the city level and say, what can we do at the city level? What can we do in Harare? What can you do in other Zimbabwean uh, uh, cities? And... One of the things that the local government has has tried to do is a lot of solar lighting. uh, And then they also have this ambitious target to make sure that their own buildings, this council, local government uh, council buildings, they are all green by a certain um, uh, time. So they are setting out. And and then there's there's been a lot of learning, uh, for example, from Fractal. So Harare has adopted Durban's River Transformative a program and you know made it their own they have actually uh, dedicated a climate desk and, a, and an environmental management unit that looks at these issues to do with resilience and they've dedicated a budget uh, i believe about 50 um uh, dollars. it might seem meek but in terms of where they are coming from uh where when we first engaged with them they said ah what is climate got to do with the city what is climate got to do with roads just to look at the journey they've come from those kinds of attitudes and perceptions to where they are beginning to have champions and and a commitment towards um, uh, mitigation and and adaptation in the city is really amazing. So those are the examples, uh, uh, Petro. There are a lot more uh, that we can read about. You talked about Lagos and so forth. But for now, I think I'll stop here. Um, it's very inspiring to hear how many African cities are going um, are going green in their development and growth. It's really, really inspiring. And then um, something that you touched on at the beginning when you were talking about Windhoek and you said, I know it's a desert. I do, in theory, I'm ashamed to say I still haven't been to Namibia. Um, but on the next war, possib- probably being um, on water, what's going on between Egypt and Ethiopia currently with the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance mm. Dam does really heavily hint at that. You've just touched on something, uh, Peter, which is very uh, important and crucial. And and I think I, I hinted on it when I said the next war, well, let's forbid it. There's not going to be a war. But, yes. you know, the pressure for water is real uh, in, 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 in Africa. Uh, and a lot, it's, it's because a lot of our our zones, for example, if you look at Southern Africa, it's sitting right there on the arid zone. So it's becoming hotter, it's becoming drier. Our rainfall is more erratic, uh, it's unpredictable, it's intense. So, you know, we are not capturing it as much as we used to in these traditional dams um, uh, that you're talking about. So we built these dams or we've been damming our rivers and we say, okay, now we've got uh, these reservoirs and, you know, they can provide for our cities, for example, they can uh, provide hydroelectricity. Perfect. It's renewable 
energy. Uh, they can provide irrigation. They can provide uh, fish and food and all those uh, other things, tourism, you know, and we are all happy. So most of these development pro pro projects happened in the 1950s, 1960s, and we were like, oh, now we've got it. And then uh, when climate change comes in and says, hi, oh, you're joking, Evan started. Yeah, <laughs> um, I am. And then climate change was like a wall. Yes. <laughs> we're beginning to face these issues where we have these large reservoirs. We've created this huge surface um, as compared to a river, which flows uh, a bit more than than in, 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 in a pond or in a dam. And then because it's becoming hotter, the evaporation uh, rates... So our water is evaporating. I know from the Zambezi, uh, some parts of the Zambezi River, which is one of the largest uh, uh, rivers, you can get up to 30% of whatever rain we receive evaporating because of some of these uh, issues, but also because of climate uh, change. So we need to really think outside the box. Yes, we can be worrying about dams and so forth. And then we kind of resorted to underground uh, water so we are now drawing a lot of our water because, you know, that pressure that I was talking about in terms of, of the water and our underground water resources are dwindling. <laughs> you know, so it's like, huh, what next? So that's why we then have to really, maybe there's no box. We can't say, think of, there's no box. Let's remove yeah. the box, right? So we're talking about, you know, strategies such as rainwater harvesting, for example. I saw this lovely video of a farmer in Botswana. Botswana is like uh, Namibia as well, as, as you would know. Extremely dry, you know? And this farmer, he just built his uh, underground tank uh, and he made sure that it's, um, you know, it's it, it doesn't leak. And he harvested um, a million cubic um, uh, meters of water. And for the rest of the year after the rainy season, unfortunately for a lot of African uh, countries, you get one, at most two rainy seasons, harvested his water. And for the rest of the year, he was fine. And he is practicing livestock farming, so he doesn't even need as much water. So it's thinking outside the box. How about if we have bylaws in our cities where every house that's coming up we have to use sustainable building materials. We have to make sure that we get rid of uh, air conditioning, heating, uh, you know, that takes up a lot of energy, but that, that also emits um, uh, greenhouse uh, gases. How about we, we have a certain number of trees that we is mandated for each um, uh, household? I'm not even talking about industries. Uh, how about we make sure that there's rainwater harvesting at household level uh, or, or at neighborhood uh, level so that we, we we depend less on less on these kind of traditional um, climate unfriendly uh, systems that we have gotten used to. And, and then we, we just form um, communities of practice. We begin to share knowledge. This is how we're doing. Let Botswana and Namibia share knowledge since they're in a desert. Let Zambia and Zimbabwe you know, share knowledge because they are in the same ecological zone. Cape Town and Durban and Dar es Salaam, since they are coastal uh, uh, cities. So it's just you you triggered <laughs> these thoughts when you were talking about the war uh, between Ethiopia and, um, yeah, so. 
Yeah, um, you know, when you talk about sharing knowledge, you also highlighted the uh, Harare project that started in Durban and that was adapt- adopted in Harare. And I was going to say, mm-hmm. we love to see the knowledge spread. We love to see it um, come alive. And then as mm-hmm. we go to the close of our conversation today, um, the call to action, what should mm-hmm. be what should be done by our governments? Earlier you talked about we love to sign documents, uh, not so much um, actually implementing the documents mm-hmm. that we signed. What should be done by um, political leaders? Um, what should be done by um, mayors as well? I think this is an appropriate time to shout out my mayor crush. Um, her name is Yvonne Akisoya. She's the mayor of Freetown and she just does brilliant, brilliant work hoping to have her on the podcast soon. And what should mm-hmm. be done by individuals? What should we do? So uh, I'll start off with individuals. Uh, I'm a tree hugger. I'm a naturalist. I love nature. I feel for nature. I have empathy for nature. And I really think we can live in harmony with nature. So at the individual level, it's really understanding that the actions that we do, even as individuals, as families, as households, have a great impact. So in my household, for example, um, we separate waste. And that makes a huge difference because our organic waste, we are able to compost it, we are able to put it back into use and into the soil. And that little action makes sure that, you know, we are not filling our landfills, our our waste management uh, facilities with organic waste, which we can make use of. And uh, we also have um, a solar system in place. I understand that solar is expensive and not all of us, you know, can can have solar, but we can have um, solar lighting, um, not only at household level, but even in, in for our streets. And some cities are beginning to uh, adopt that so that we are not putting so much pressure on our energy system, particularly those that uh, uh, use non-renewables and a lot of our cities are still uh, at that stage. So those are the things that we can do at individual uh, level and there are many more. And then at city level, we can adopt a lot of the things that we have talked about, discussed in this um, in this podcast. Uh, for example, greening our buildings, making sure that, you know, uh, our, our, our building material, our roads, uh, our buildings, um, our infrastructure is really using climate uh, resilient uh, materials, but also environmentally friendly uh, uh, materials. And our politicians, I mean, they can uh, run a champion the cause of climate resilience, not only when it comes to uh, policy, but the implementation. So raising awareness um, in our communities, walking the talk, they should also practice climate resilience. Um, If they can afford uh, electrical uh, vehicles that uh, use solar and so forth, promoting that, their their production, um, incentivizing uh, uh, renewable uh, energy, remove the tax when it comes to, 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 to solar, for example, so that, you know, if it's being imported, it can come through. Sponsor innovation to do with uh, renewables, greening, 
um, tree planting, uh, biodiversity protection, all those things that we've been talking about. So politicians really have the opportunity to champion the cause of uh, uh, climate uh, resilience. Mayors uh, included, I mean, you you talked about your favorite mayor. Um, there are quite a number who are, who are championing this cause. For example, the mayor of Maputo, who is part of ICLE's uh, covenant of mayors, uh, comes through and he, he he talks about some of the things uh, that that they do. And then just as 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 political leaders, as governments, just to harmonize whatever programs, whatever is is happening in terms of um, trying to promote climate resilience and climate. Uh, uh, I mean, urban resilience in particular, because what's happening um, is that you'll find a lot of piecemeal um, approaches. And so the impact is really not so much. You have civ- uh, civil societies, for example, NGOs, uh, community-based organizations, faith-based organizations doing their little things here and there in one community with researchers and, and so forth. But it's not really harmonized. But if we come together, and begin to work collaboratively, form coalitions, uh, form partnerships, the impact is much greater and we can work towards a common cause and not just to have, you know, the advocates are uh, putting up their placards for this, the researchers are singing another song, the government is saying something else, but just to, you know, bring us all together. And that goes back to our issue to do with knowledge uh, uh, sharing. And then one of the things that we have managed to do, uh, I've been talking about Fractal and Epic, is this city-to-city learning exchanges. And it really makes a difference. Whether it's mayors who are visiting each other, politicians visiting each other, researchers, youth students, there really is something, and we called it social learning uh, and peer-to-peer learning. There's really something about observing, being in a place, going to a site, Seeing water, which is wastewater, being reclaimed until you can drink it in Bindok. There's a certain inspiration that comes uh, and a confidence that comes from there to say, well, if Bindok can do it, uh, let's go back home, uh, wherever home is, wherever our city is, and also practice uh, the same. Or even then to say, oh, no, we can tweak it a bit because in our context, maybe we're not like Windhoek, we're not so dry, we have a little bit of water, so we can also do, you know, uh, ABC. So so those are some of the things, um, and I think decision-making comes in very strong, and this is something that we emphasized uh, in Fractal, understanding the context of each city and the decision-making processes makes a huge difference because then when we come with solutions and interventions, it's not you know, coming as outsiders is really understanding, okay, so who makes the decisions? What are the power dynamics? Who is who uh, in this place? And who do I target so that, you know, uh, there's effective climate uh, resilience? So it's it's all these processes coming together. And I think those are some of the calls to, to action that we can concentrate on. Thank you. Um, harmonize the message and knowledge sharing. Beautiful Mm. um, point to end on. Lovely. Thank you.
Thank you for taking time to listen to this episode of Sustain267, which is part of the Eakly Africa and Africa Center for Cities, Rise Africa's discussion series. This series is supported by the South African National Research Foundation. For more, for more Rise Africa thought pieces, which bring to you Africa action, innovation, future, and urban, check out the Rise Africa platform. Please subscribe to the podcast so you get an alert every time we post new episodes. Also rate the Sustain267 podcast wherever you listen to it to make it easier to find for people who may be curious to hear more conversations with Africans on climate change and sustainability on the continent. I am the host of Sustain 267 podcast, Pato Gilisisi, and the sound engineer is Malehoma Koti. Let's connect on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter on our handle at Sustain267. Take care. Sustain 267.